0: My name is Adam Roberts and I'm a vocal coach here in the live music capital of the world, Austin, Texas. I'm on a journey to learn the stories behind extraordinary voices of people I know and what makes them unique. Each of my guests has chosen to follow their voice. So this is Cola Voce. Welcome everyone to this new episode of Cola Voce. I am thrilled to share with you today what I know is going to be an episode that is full of wisdom because the conversations... He laughs, but (laughs) the conversations that I have had over the years with Carl have been really enlightening for me and very special. And I'm sure that what Carl has as insights for us today are going to be very much in line with the mission and the thrust of this podcast. So welcome, Carl. Thanks for taking the time with me today to share your thoughts. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Could you talk a little bit about, Carl, about yourself just generally and give us a little rundown, a little bio about Carl before we uh, get going with some of the uh, in-depth questions here?
1: Oh, here's the best thing. I love talking about myself. So this is great.
0: <laughs> Wonderful.
1: Uh, no, uh, my name is Carl Gonzalez. I am born and raised in Austin, Texas. I went to school at Texas State University and then started doing a theater career in Austin. I've done a little improv in LA and I've just been trying to make it as an artist ever since I've graduated.
0: And succeeding, I might add. Carl is a director, a performer, a many multiple hats kind of guy and um, somebody that um, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot from for a long time. Carl Can you take me back? Cause I don't think I know this story. Can you take me back along with everyone who's listening and talk a little bit about how you got into the theater?
1: Sure. So I know my mom, when I was like really, really young, put me in things just to see if, you know, something would stick. And she was like, well, you like performing with, you know, the Disney movies and doing your own interpretations of the dances and such. So she's like, maybe you'll like theater. So I did some school plays and then I really didn't get into theater as like, hey, maybe I could actually do this for a living until about high school. I went on a, field trip to New York, and I went to see Phantom of the Opera. And I'm just like, what is this? And all of a sudden, my mind is blown, because these are people that are doing something that I didn't realize that I've loved all my life, and they're making a living off of it. And it was just, it was everything. It was the direction. It was how incredible the set was, how incredible the music is, how amazing these singers are. And I knew that originally I thought I was like, I have to be in Phantom. I want to be in Phantom. I want to be in Phantom. Now I'm like, okay, I kind of don't care if I'm in Phantom or not. But it was more of a, I
0: need to be involved in this industry. Fantastic. And so then, you know, you have that transformational experience with Phantom. Where do things head and go from there for you with theater?
1: well unfortunately and i know we're probably going to talk more about this as the episode goes on but i was told through a couple of teachers and a lot of my friends said hey you can't be phantom you can't be the beast you can't be this or that because these are white roles and these are roles that are done by white people so at that point i was young and naive and i'm like well all right i guess they're correct and then i started listening to rent and when I listen to Rent, I'm like, okay, these are, you know, this is more of my type of music because I used to be in a rock band. So I'm like, yes, I love this music. And then I'm like, oh, these are people of color in this too. Maybe I could be in this show. And the more I learned that what was decorum in theater can now be broken, the more it started transforming the way I look at theater. Even through my own bias and through my own prejudice, I'm able to, and still am going on the journey of what it means to decolonize theater.
0: Well, and in fact, mentioning Phantom, I think it was maybe just last month that the first Black actress to play Christine full-time in the role um, happened on Broadway, right? Yes. And apparently,
1: um, I was talking to my friend, and she's incredible. My friend could not stop talking about just the master she is at her technique, and it makes me really
0: happy. It's so wonderful and so sad at the same time that it took, you know, the better part of three decades or however long Phantom's been running. For that to be the case. But of course, phantom is not solely culpable in this. It's really an industry wide epidemic and something that I know you and I have talked a lot about, particularly. Um, I've gotten to hear your thoughts in the past couple of years specifically. And I'm wondering, so you already, you just talked about, I think a little bit about what I was going to ask you next, which is when did you first sort of realize that the playing space was not equal for everyone in the theater? That's
1: a deep question, because I think the more I learn about theater, the more different levels I'm finding that aren't equal, because for the longest time, I knew that maybe since I was in my early 20s, I knew that theater wasn't equitable for people of color. So when I got the chance to direct the normal heart, I made a point of I'm going to cast people of color in these roles because... I know that their story was even overshadowed by Larry Kramer at the time. That being said, I also learned that maybe I should not have directed the role because even though I am a bisexual pansexual man, I came out just a few years ago and that journey wasn't necessarily my journey to tell at that point. The production was incredible and i'm glad that the story was told in austin because otherwise it would not have been or would not have been with people of color but i don't think that i would have a cast it the way i cast it and then be actually directed i probably would have tried to i might have assisted somebody who has been through that life experience or that's part of their history to make sure that they're able to tell it the way they want
0: So you said something in there that I think we, a lot of us say, as a pretty verbatim phrase, which is, that's not my story to tell. So my question is, what makes a story someone's to tell?
1: You know, I think at least when it comes to marginalized communities, especially, until that there is a true decolonization of theater, that the people whose experiences are told by these stories are the ones who should be telling these stories. So I wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable with either someone casting an all-white in the Heights or having a production, even a production team that's all-white when it comes to in the Heights, the color purple. And I don't see that changing until theater itself changes I don't know if I necessarily answered the question or not either.
0: <laughs> I think you completely answered the question. Um, and to, to spin off on another question, you know, I think that decolonization is a, a term that until fairly recently, you would hear primarily in academic circles, really. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean when you say the decolonization of theater?
1: Sure. Uh, I do want to say that also, these are all kind of my opinions from my experience. I am nowhere the end-all be-all. I could very well be wrong. I'm willing to learn, but this is my opinion. This is coming from my experience. As far as the decolonization of theater, I talked about this when I did a show with Penfold a few months ago. It wasn't until I was in college that I had a professor of color for acting, for theater, for anything. It was one of the best classes I've ever taken. But every other teacher that I've had that's been in the arts, especially, has been white. And I think that's a start because you mentioned academics. I think it's all connected because as unfortunately as we are in the United States, and we'll just talk about the United States right now because I don't have experience in other countries, is that all of our ways are very Eurocentric. Everything we do is very Eurocentric. I know myself, you, everyone does things every day that's very Eurocentric. That's because we were colonized, because this is someone conquered, someone killed us and said, this is the way life should be. And if you don't agree, then you don't deserve to live. And I think going forward and continuing to have this discussion on how we do things, because we're even learning, you know, what's the difference between equity and justice? What does that look like? It's one of my favorite political cartoons I've seen. Oh, this is equity where everyone can see over a fence and watch like a baseball game. But it even goes a step further to where justice is that fence is completely down to where there's not even a reason why we would need that help to experience joy. And I think that's, at least that's the journey I'm on, is looking how to decolonize, look at different ways of life, different ways outside of the U.S. on how to do theater. Now, that can look, in my opinion, to casting certain ways, making sure we cast as equitable and as justly as possible, making sure our production teams are The same way as well. I don't know the level that we'll be able to get to without having to kind of, dare I say, destroy theater the way it is, which maybe that's the case down the line. I don't know yet.
0: Well, you know, you talked just now about something that I think is an interesting point, since we're talking in America at this moment, since that's our experience. Does theater in America warrant a complete overhaul that might not even look like what we have come to know as theater in America?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I think eventually, well, we deserve it. We deserve to see what different types of theater would look like that's been decolonized. And I know that can be a big word because that can encompass so many things, but it starts with oh, we're not just going to put on Hamilton and all of a sudden everything's good. I love Hamilton. Hamilton's incredible. It casts black and brown bodies. I can't be mad at that. Hamilton in itself is also problematic. And I think uh, Lin Miranda does a great job at realizing that, you know, I, I wrote this at a certain time. I wrote this so I could cast black and brown bodies and I could tell the story of how the country was now that the country is with the people who are in the country now, which is fantastic. I think that's great. But the next step would be telling stories of, say, Dolores Huerta, Cesar Chavez, MLK told from someone with that lived experience. Marsha P. Johnson would be incredible to see a story about and telling those stories, but also making sure we have a director of color, making sure we have designers of color, making sure the producers are of color. That's where I think Hamilton kind of hurts sometimes is unless someone, you know, messaged me at some Latino guy if I'm wrong, but that most of the producers are white, I think at least. And I think that will begin what the process of decolonization will look like is just being able to tell our own stories. I'm not sure how it would look after that because I, A, can't see the future and B, I'm not knowledgeable on the next steps. I unfortunately haven't done my research on what the next steps would be. But I think that would be a start.
0: Well, as Carl Gonzalez, as you have mentioned, you are one human being on the planet with one set of, of, uh, informed ideas. And as a director and as an actor, I'm interested to know, you know, over the past few years, several years, really not just the past few years, we've gone through a lot of iterations of what might be called Colorblind casting or color conscious casting or any number of other ways in which this, you know, supposedly new casting philosophy or process has been labeled. And I would like to know what your thoughts are when you see the words color conscious casting, colorblind casting, or any other version of that kind of rhetoric that you've seen.
1: Yeah, uh, colorblind casting. We need to stop using that period because. That's saying in itself that hey, Martin Luther King should be white, Marsha P. Johnson should be white, and that's not the case. That is not. I'm not going to go watch that show. If you want to put on that show, you have the money. Go do it. I won't support it. I'll probably protest it. But you know, that's your business. Color conscious casting. I really enjoy. I I, I don't know if there is a better term for it now. So I'm just going to assume that that's our best term right now because that allows us to. Is the story going to change? If Marsha P. Johnson is white, the answer is yes. Or you can even ask if that story going to change if Bobby from Company is black. No, it's not. There might be some underlying tones that you can play with, but as far as the actual story, it's not going to change. You know, most of Stephen Sondheim's musicals, you can truly do color conscious and cast whoever you want. And I don't think it would change the story unless it's like maybe... um. Pacific oh,
0: overtures, for There example. we go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm also curious to know, going even a little more specific here, from your experience and in your mind, you know, we've, we've talked, we've specifically said, um, you know, actors of color, persons of color. I'm interested to know if there is, if you think it goes in a particular or more specific direction when it comes to the Latino, Latina, Latinx community. Uh, and whether that um, those stories, the cultural plurality within the community, is there something even more specific there when it comes to stories told on stage?
1: I know it's difficult sometimes as being part of the Latinx community, because there's such a range of us. There's Afro-Latinx, there's white Latinx. So I think there's so many different stories in our own culture. Some are more focused on than others. And I think that's something that we as our own culture and as our own community need to address. Again, not speaking ill on this man because he literally gave me new hope when it came to musical theater. But there's an argument that Lynn Miranda is a safe Latino because He can present white and is a lighter color. I'm not quite sure if I 100% agree with that or not, but I do think it brings up an interesting point because that allows it to be safe. Telling a story of Hamilton allows it to be safe because it's still a white story. And I think within our Latin community, there's a lot of R.A prejudice and bias towards each other, a lot of colorism. That's what I'm looking for. And I think that's something we have to work on as well when it comes to putting stories about the Latin community on stage, because there's so many different versions, so many different aspects of the Latin community.
0: Now, we've talked a lot, and you've mentioned some already about musical theater. And I want to come back to that in a minute and go down the musical theater route specifically. But I also know that you are uh, about to direct a production of Anna in the Tropics. Is that right at Ground Floor Theater? Yes, I
1: am. I was supposed to direct it in February, but this thing called COVID keeps on happening.
0: It does, doesn't it? It's no fun.
1: It's no fun. So Lisa, Patty, and I decided that we should push it back to August because A, February, not the biggest turnout for theater anyway. And B, if people are worried about COVID, then they might not come out, which lucked out because half of my cast, including myself, had COVID from different experiences. So I don't even know what that rehearsal process would have looked like.
0: Hopefully, by then, we'll have as close to a clean slate as we possibly can, right? Right. For folks who may be listening who are unfamiliar with the premise of Anna in the Tropics, could you talk a little bit about that and also how the choice to do that production came to be? I don't know if you were involved in, in that process of choosing that particular text. And can you just talk a little bit about what all of that looks like?
1: Sure. So just a very quick overview on Ana and the Tropics. It's about a Cuban cigar factory that's located right outside of Miami. And it's about these factory workers who are visited every day or every week by a lectern who tells them the story of Ana Karenina. And they start to see that their lives are mimicking what's happening in the story. And that's all I want to say about that show, because what happens in it is completely beautiful. It
0: is gorgeous, and there are a lot of unexpected moments.
1: Yes, there are. Uh, as far as how I got involved, uh, I have to give a shout out to my friend Matrix Kilgore, because he's the one who recommended me to Lisa Sheps to direct the show. So Lisa messaged me and was like, hey, is this something you're interested in doing? I've always loved the play. So I said, yes, we had a meeting, Lisa, Patty, and I. and. It just took off from there. That was before COVID even hit. So yeah, it's been since maybe 2018 or 19, one of those. Wow. What's what's time anymore? Really, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's been in the process of for that long.
0: And what would you say that offering that sort of a text and experience to the Austin community, what does that mean to you? Where does that fit in You know, I know of a handful of companies and producers and entities that put forth work that is particular to actors of color and stories of cultures of color. And I'm interested to know what that means to you as a director to be able to bring that to the world of Austin. I'm hoping it
1: serves as a gateway to show that our stories are popular enough, are important enough to be told. I am very lucky because I'm going to say this and it's going to sound a little conceited, but I'm fairly known in Austin for my work now. And Anna in the Tropics is one of the best known plays It's incredible. So that combination is already a good combination to bring people out to see the theater, which is awesome. I'm very thankful for my community. And I'm very thankful for Lisa, Patty, and Simone for putting us in this situation. I do hope that it branches out and that it allows smaller theater companies because ground floor theater for those who don't know is a is a bigger theater company in austin and i'm hoping that it allows more actors of color more marginalized actors actresses to show them that our stories can be told on multiple different levels that you know someone who puts up a story in a community center is just as important as someone who might put on something at the zach theater I I just hope that it shows that our stories are important.
0: So speaking of stories being important, I'd love to go down the musical theater rabbit hole here for a second, which we could do for hours and hours, I'm sure. We really could. (laughs) And have. So, you know, I know you, Carl, primarily our work together has been um, working on your voice and, and expanding your range and expanding your vocal potential and all those kinds of things. And I'm curious to know, what about musical theater do you think, generally speaking, and for you specifically, how does the literal voice factor into the voice that you give to characters in the stories that we tell? And why is that so exciting in a musical theater context?
1: For those who don't know, if you ever take lessons with Adam Roberts, you also get a therapist in there because he <laughs> ends up asking these questions that make you think and analyze why you make these decisions. And I think literally when you were asking me that, I just kind of uncovered something. And If I get emotional, forgive me. I actually think musical theater was a little traumatic for me at first because uh, for those who don't know me, I am six foot two. I am a big guy and I am darker skinned. Latino. And for the longest time, I would just watch my favorite thing in the world not be for me. I would watch musical theater be for everyone else but me, whether it be a racing, whether it be a size thing, whether it be a vocal thing. And thanks to a huge part of my wife, Lacey, for her talking to me constantly about this, is that I can only do so much without putting in some work. Yes, things need to change, but I kind of thought that part of me needed to change as well. And one thing is, I, for the longest time, was told, because I'm a big guy, hey, you're a baritone, you're a bass, these are the songs you need to sing. So I would struggle, and I would struggle, and my voice would hurt. I really didn't even think that, okay, my voice isn't meant to sing, my voice isn't meant for this. And then when I started working with you, and you were like, Carl, try this song. I said, Carl, try this song. Carl, hit these notes. Well, Carl, this is why you're struggling because you're not trained to handle these low notes. Also, your voice is more up here. And I can't tell you what that switch meant to me because it showed me that if I keep on working with you and or slash with the tools that you've given me, that I can be up there holding my own. That means more to me that I can really express.
0: Well... It means a lot to me, too, because it's all intertwined with sort of the impetus for this for this series and this podcast, too, because it's just like you said about, you know, the sort of academic world that a lot of folks come out of and the stories that get told by virtue of sort of a Eurocentric academic model that we find in many places here in the U.S. And the same holds true for a lot of well-intended voice performance programs that that are incredibly Eurocentric most places and that thus very much sort of subscribe to primarily, in many ways, training folks for opera and for art song. And you know, opera very much relies on this fach system where you are very much classified in many ways by your vocal, I don't want to say vocal range because that's too simplistic to explain the system, but people come out saying, oh, I'm an alto. Uh, or I'm a coloratura, for example, in the in the Fach system. But so many folks will also come out of high school programs, and and they'll say to me, "Oh, I'm an alto. I don't I don't sing that." Or, "Oh, I'm a I'm a baritone. I don't sing that." And that's just not how the voice actually works. But. It's such a change, and it it is starting to happen, but such a change needs to occur in the ways in which that is taught and conceived of in all stages of education, I think, so that people don't have that experience that you had, where there's this assumption that this is the box I fit into. Because not only is that often not the case. And, and you know, like you said, you were struggling, your voice would hurt when you would try to sing like a bass or whatever. And we have also worked to expand your range down there in a healthy way, because we're not (laughs) saying we're not going to do that. But at the same time, it's so limiting. And why have someone be limited in what they can do? It just doesn't make sense.
1: Right. No, I remember one of my favorite things. And you said it this way, because you and I have this relationship. But when you were asking me to hit a high note, it was either like a G or an A. And I told him like, oh, I'm a baritone. I'm going to struggle. You're like, I didn't ask you what you were. I asked you to hit this note. (laughs) And I'm like, All right, let's do this.
0: And you did. And yeah, yeah, that's not that it's not work. And it's not that somebody can just roll out of bed one day. I mean, I would be jobless if that were the case, right? (laughs) Someone could just roll out of bed someday and hit that note, but you put in the work like you do in everything that you do and it bears its fruit, right? And I think that you have a special connection to musical theater and its power to evoke characterization and story beyond solely being a showpiece for the voice itself as well. Thank you. So we've touched on this already, but I would like to ask you more specifically. And again, being, being one person first, maybe initially, where do you think the first steps are for someone who's listening to this podcast, say, who might be a theater producer? Maybe they have a very small theater in, in some rural town, or maybe they have a much larger theater or where are the first places you think that we could start ripping away? that colonialism of the theater and hope to make headway with some new work that is representative of the world and that honors the stories of many more people.
1: Sure. So one way, and I'm going to shout out my friend Ryan Crowder of Penfold Theater because he's been doing this, Is surround yourself with people with different minds surround yourself with people of color surround yourself with gay trans artists and let them have a voice in the room, not even just invite them to the table. They need to have an equal voice in the room so as soon as you do that you'll realize that oh maybe we don't have to do fences for the 100th time maybe we don't have to do top dog underdog by the way two of my favorite plays so that's not you know uh, against them or anything but maybe we can find more local playwrights more local playwrights of color more trans playwrights that they don't even have to be local just ones that maybe aren't as highly produced and getting a voice from someone who Maybe, you know, a person of color who grew up in Arkansas. Let's see what their play looks like. A person who grew up in Colombia. Let's see what their play looks like. South Africa. What does that play look like? Someone who's transitioned. What does that play look like? And I I know this triggers producers, but money. It's money, giving money to these communities, giving money to these artists for them to tell their stories. Because if you're wanting them to tell a story, but wanting them to do it for free, nah, you're just exploiting that. It needs to be paid. There needs to be some financial gain to these artists. And I think that is a start, is it's not just about who's on stage or even who's behind stage. It's who's handling the money and who is the money being given to.
0: Now, on the other side of the proscenium, when there's a proscenium, (laughs) what about cultivating audiences that reflect the kind of theater that we want? Now, there's obviously, (laughs) it starts with telling stories that reflect and represent and resonate with the audiences that we hope to also cultivate at the theater. But I think a lot of times as a producer, as an artistic director, as an executive director, it can be very easy and it needs to start obviously within the company, but it can be very easy to sometimes forget cultivating audiences so that it's a shared communal experience and just isn't happening on one side of the proscenium. How do you think a first step would look for folks who are looking to do that?
1: I think one way, and this is something I would love to do, I believe it was American Theater Magazine that gave a challenge of if you had five shows to make a season, what would the five shows be? And in my head, I would love for two or three shows to be up and calling playwrights, playwrights of color, trans playwrights. And maybe the other two shows are, hey, we'll give you West Side Story. Maybe now we'll give you Shrek or something along those lines. Because I do understand that due to the way theater is right now, you need money. You need money to be able to reach out. So if you're able to give that to those communities, then I think that'll be important even when you do something like Shrek or West Side Story or whatever big musical people are doing right now, um, I'm seeing a lot of people doing 25th annual Putnam County spelling bee everywhere for some reason. And maybe reach out to those communities of color in your towns and say, hey, we are having, you know, this show. We want to invite you, we have special discounted tickets. We do a rush system where, you know, first 10 get in free or something along those lines, because that's where community outreach can happen when you're not necessarily doing a community for the show. So it can be, oh, come and see Shrek. Thank you for coming to see. Maybe you get a free ticket. Maybe you get a discount ticket to our next show, which is by up and coming playwright Carl Gonzalez or whatever. And then you bring people in that way. That's one way to cultivate audience. I'm sure there's so many other ways, probably some better ways. That's where my mind goes first, though.
0: I love that, and and I think that what you were saying, speaking to original work, I was just having a conversation about this earlier today with someone. Speaking to original work versus um, big splashy known titles. You know what's one of the things that's very interesting at Tilt, which for those. Uh, folks who are listening and may not know, Tilt is a disability... I hate... I don't like to say disability-focused. We're actually working on different language for that because it's not necessarily disability-focused, but it is a theater company that is comprised of disabled actors. We founded Tilt almost 10 years ago now. We'll be in our 10th anniversary season next year. And one of the things throughout those 10 years that we have come to find... And that I remind the company members of all the time is that actually the shows that we write and devise as a company that are originals tend to be more anticipated. And in terms of ticket sales and things like that, actually more successful than when we have done big name musicals. Doesn't mean we don't do those shows because we do those shows with new interpretations that focus on our mission, our demographics, our, you know, experiences and things. But I always tell the company members, you know, so many companies wish they could subside primarily on original work. And in our case, it seems like that tends to be the most popular. And I think that people sometimes fear too much the idea of new original work because I think done correctly, dare I say marketed correctly, that certainly it can be very successful. Oh, yeah. So I would like to ask you, too, um, this wasn't a question I was planning to ask, but you mentioned it earlier, and I think it's pretty interesting. You mentioned that a few years ago, you came out as pansexual, as bisexual. I'm interested to know if any of your experience within the theater as a director, as a patron, as an actor shifted, because we've talked a lot about one element of your experience as an actor and a director of color. Has anything shifted for you that you're aware of in terms of your sexuality and how you perceive and engage with theater?
1: And that's a really good question. First of all, I have to thank my partner and wife, Lacey, because when I came out, she was 100% supportive and helped me and did more than any other human being should do. She is the perfect human being. I think what's funny is that when I came out, a lot of my closest, closest friends, I got a few text messages that were like, hey, just let you know we're, of course, here for you. We're here for you. We'll do whatever. My closest best friends were like, we effing knew it. And we're just joking with me, And I just laughed about it. And as far as I know right now, because I think just I've always been trying to just be whoever I feel like, and whoever I am in the moment, it really hasn't changed because my behavior hasn't changed. I think I am looking more into the history of the LGBTQIA2 plus communities and seeing what things that I'm doing, what language am I using that's either out of date, what do I need to learn, and unfortunately, it took me becoming part of that community to really sit down and look at what am I doing that may cause harm to my own community? What can I also do to maybe rise up my community as well, when honestly, everyone should be doing that to begin with. And I think that really, really helped me. It just made me happier. It made me less angry when I work, I think, because I got to be myself. I didn't have to be a hard ass when I was a director. I didn't have to be a certain way. I didn't have to be that director that, you know, slams a clipboard on the ground and it's like, this isn't theater. I got to be me and I got to be all of me, to quote Encanto, all of me. <laughs>
0: well, and that's a gift for us too. The rest of us who know you and work with you, I mean, it, that everyone in the world could be who they are, would be, you know, it would be the apotheosis of humanity, Right. Right. <laughs> so what is we talked about anna in the tropics obviously but what is on the horizon for carl gonzalez otherwise what are your dreams what are your hopes for the future
1: well let's see here for the present i'll give a plug to the out of ink festival and teatro vivos latin play festival i'm directing for both uh how i'm going to manage my time is a uh, still to be answered and then I'm a production manager for a production of A War of the Worlds coming up with Penfold. And that's going to be a really amazing story. Um, my best friend did a interpretation of A War of the Worlds cast with an all-black cast. Mark Puhay is playing Orson Wells. Wow. That, it's going to be absolutely incredible. So that's taken up my time a lot. I think my dream, though, if I have my dreams and aspirations, is I want to do it all. I love doing plays. That's great. But it's like, you know, if I want to act, I really, I I miss doing musical theater a lot. And I'm very fortunate that the reason why I'm not auditioning right now is because I'm booked the entire year, which is a very happy, booked as a director, which is a very fortunate thing. But, yeah, I love directing. I want to, I would love to start my own theater company. And I would eventually like to, you know, try my luck in New York, try my luck in L.A., see what happens. I I'm lucky enough that I have um my family lives here as well. Lacey's family lives around the area to where we can go, we can try and I don't want to say we fail cuz with Lacey and I, we don't fail, we learn. And if we decide that we want to move back, we have a place to to be here. So I th- that's what I would like to do. I would like to I think I'll try to find gravity, you know?
0: Yes, and <laughs> we don't fail, we learn. Wow. Right. What a fantastic adage, motto, amazing. I want to thank you, Carl, for taking the time to talk today, but also for your courageousness with these questions because I can only imagine that being part of any marginalized community does not make it any easier to find the language with which we want to speak our experiences and and our perspectives. I know I despite being a disabled director who also is part of a disabled theater company that is often called upon to talk about language to use, it's still hard. <laughs> it's still hard to find the language to express. And I, I really appreciate the courage that you that you have in and, and the example that you show for others to do the same
1: oh thank you adam um you you know you call me and i'll do whatever you need uh i love you man and you've really changed my life you've changed so many artists life just by telling them to be yourself to use your voice and to directly quote you i don't know why you aren't listening to me i'm adam roberts
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. I don't want to go back in time to whatever context made me say that quote.
1: (laughs) I did. I probably did something stupid. And you're like, I've been telling you to learn this song for three weeks now. Why aren't you listening to me?
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Amazing. Well, thank you for that, Carl. I love you too. And I can't wait to get to work with you more and more in the future as time goes on. Definitely. I hope you all will join us for next month's episode of Cola Voce and the ones to come. And until then, remember to follow your voice. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of Kola Voce. And until next time, remember, follow your heart and follow your voice.